Students, today we're going to talk about Acts 4 and 5, but quickly we are going to mention Act 3, Scene 4, Scene 5, and then Scene 6. Scene 6 is really going to help us set up the events of today, which will be the assault on Macbeth's character and counsel. Perhaps you will already say that his character has been assaulted by his own what? His own actions or choices, yes. But we will see the external manifestation of the choices that he has made today. Remember, we ended last time with a banquet. A banquet celebrating the what of Macbeth? Coronation. The coronation, the ultimate achievement of Macbeth. Yes, that was the climax of his life, that's for sure. And right at that climax, who is it that he had just had killed that was so good a friend of his that even shared similar ambitions to his? Banquo himself. And so who appeared thrice to Macbeth, so unwelcome at this feast, though invited? Yes, Banquo himself. Yes, though, could anyone see him except for Macbeth? No, absolutely not, because of course Banquo was dead, killed by not the hand of Macbeth, potentially by the hand if that third murderer was him himself, but by the will of Macbeth. And so in killing his friend, he is forever haunted by his friend. And so he in sort of a schizophrenic, delusional, sort of seeing things and thus screaming because of them way, yelled out in front of all the thanes of Scotland, seemed to be seeing things invisible to all of them. And do you think this helped their opinion of their their theretofore king or hurt the opinion of their choice as king? Hurt. Hurt quite a bit. It's almost as if the actions that Macbeth had taken to become king are starting to what up to him. Catch up to him to creep up on him like a snake. Very good. Very good, very good, very good. Okay, I just want to say a couple things about Act 3, Scene 5. It's very short. There's just essentially a long speech by Hecate, as it's said in our translation. Hecate, as we would say, knowing our good Latin and Greek. Um, she just gives a speech. We think it's an, inter interpol excuse me, an interpolation by a then-current dramatist named Thomas Middleton. Know that name. Um, and it does upset our ideas of threes. We do have another time when we are going to see... The witches, the third time we will see the witches, and they will give to us three new prophecies. Then, actually, Macbeth will pursue them rather than coming upon them then, suggesting that perhaps he is, he is living more and more in his imagination the worse and worse he makes his what? His reality. Because you know, that is often the case, sadly enough. That said, I want you to remember the rule of three here. There are three rip witches. We will soon receive three prophecies. Macbeth knows in this play three ranks. We will, uh, there were also, of course, three murders. There will be other instances of three in here as well, but I just want you to know those. Write them quickly. Three witches, three ranks, three times seeing. Oh, yeah, do I have three? Oh, three times seeing the witches themselves, of course. And then, of course, the three murders, just a few different times. There might be some other times as well. I just made that list quickly. All right, Act 3, Scene 6. This is when things start to change. Macbeth has heretofore been getting away with everything that he has done. And of course, internally he has not. He has started to have delusions. He has started to exhibit symptoms of being schizophrenic. Schizophrenic literally meaning there being a schism in your friend. The friend is a Greek organ of thinking. You become frenetic when you cannot think right. You become frantic. And so just as he had once cleaved a man in half, who had attempted to cleave the country in half, he is himself having his mind split in what? By his own decisions. In half. Exactly. Again, 
The theme of this play, one of the themes of this play is how do things come together? How do things split apart? Of course, it comes down to your own personal what's in your own life. Your own choices. Your own choices. And so Lennox, who is loyal to Duncan, makes some sarcastic remarks. I'll share these remarks with you. About Macbeth to another thing. Banquo apparently should not have been out riding late by himself alone. He seems to have gotten what he deserved. This is sarcastic because the idea seems to be there are dangerous things out in the night when you are near Inverness, the castle of Macbeth. Those dangerous things happening to be what? Wolves, lions, tigers, or Macbeth himself. Yes, the lion, or excuse me, the dog, the sheep dog that is supposed to protect the pen has actually become a what? A wolf. A wolf. The dog that is supposed to be protecting the kingdom is now the wolf that is eating the hens within it. In any case, in any case, we hear now that Lennox, uh, that Macduff, has fled, has gone to England there to join forces with Malcolm and other various English noblemen with the blessing of England's king, Edward, at that time. They are going to raise an army. They are going to raise an army against Macbeth. One unfortunate strategic mistake of Macbeth. Duff here is that he does not flee with his family. That will cost them, and that will cost him tremendously. Let's read it. Lennox says, My former speeches have but hit your thoughts, which can interpret further. Only I say things have been strangely born. Things are strange. Literally, we have seen strange things in the air. In particular, we saw two horses eat each other, or excuse me, multiple horses by account ate each other. We saw an eclipse, we saw a stormy night, all sorts of weird things are happening. There's a king who seems to be schizophrenic at this point. It's almost as if nature is turning on itself. Things are unnatural. In fact, I'll end the lecture today by talking about how an unnatural thing ends another unnatural thing. When I talk about a C-section Macduff ending the life of Macbeth. In any case, the gracious Duncan was pitied of Macbeth. Married, he was dead. And the right valiant Banquo walked too late. Whom you may say, if it please you, Fleance killed. If it please you. That's just diverging perspectives. Does he believe that Fleance actually killed his father Banquo? No. Who is he connecting to both those actions? Banquo died. Duncan died. What connects those two people and the circumstances under which they died? The presence of Macbeth. Precisely so. He is alluding to the fact that, hmm, seems like if you're kind of near Macbeth at particular times, you end up what? Almost as if, what is the cause of your death? Macbeth himself. He's saying it without what? Without saying it. Exactly. Hmm. It's like when you give someone a really meaningful look, like, did you see Tom yesterday? Exactly. Everybody knows that I'm saying more than what I'm actually saying when I say that sort of thing. In any case, whom you may say, if it please you, Fleance killed. For Fleance fled. Men must not walk too late. Who cannot want the thought of how monstrous it was for Malcolm and for Donaldbane to kill their gracious father. Damned in fact. How it did grieve Macbeth. Did he not straight in pious rage the two delinquents tear that were the slaves of drink and thralls of sleep? Was not that nobly done? Aye, and wisely, too. For twould have angered any heart alive to hear the men deny it. What is he impugning there? 
What is he suggesting there when he says, wisely done killing those two men, slaves to drink, drink and thralls to sleep, yes? He killed, <coughs> he's uh, saying that uh, he killed the two guards as a way to cover up his tracks. Right. Perhaps it was wise to kill those two guards. Had they woken, they might have been able to say what happened. Perhaps they would have denied that they had done the thing itself. Perhaps people would have believed them. If they believed them, they would have looked for another cause, another murder. And perhaps they would have found the true one, which would have been... Mm. So that I say, he has borne all things well. And I do think that had he Duncan's sons under his key, as ants please heaven, excuse me, I don't know how to say ants, he shall not, they should find, what twere to kill a father. So should Fleance, but peace, for from broad words and cause he failed his presence at the tyrant's feast. I hear Macduff lives in disgrace. Sir, can you tell where he bestows himself? I just want you to notice a word that's being very particularly used here by our friend Lennox. What has he referred to Macbeth as here? A tyrant. A tyrant, someone who has illegitimately come to the throne. But he was chosen by the other thanes. What could be illegitimate about his path to the throne, therefore? He was chosen. That's perfectly correct. But what is he impugning? That there must have been some what that led to this choice. Action. The sort of action that is illegal. Which is called a what? A crime. A crime. That there must have been some crime. He's continually, continually alluding to the fact that Macbeth is a what? Tyrant. Not just a tyrant, a, a criminal, right? That he has been killing on his way to become king. Exactly. He seems very smart, in fact. In fact. All right. And then the Lord responds to him, the son of Duncan, and this is going to tell us what's about to happen, from whom this tyrant, again, accepting the conceit of Lennox here, holds the due of birth, lives in the English court, and is received of the most pious Edward, that's the king of England at the time, with such grace that the malevolence of fortune, the malevolence of fortune indeed, malevolence of actually who? Macbeth. Nothing takes from his high respect. Thither, Macduff is gone to pray the holy king upon his aid to wake no Northumberland and warlike seaward. All right. England has received Malcolm. England has received Macduff. England has access access to old and young Seward. Young Seward will die by the sword of Macbeth while he blathers crazily. They are going to mount a force. They are going to march on Inverness, the castle of Macbeth. There will be a major battle between them. Okay, that by the help of these, with him above, that's God, to ratify the work, we may again give to our tables meat, sleep to our knights again. Remember, what is it that Macbeth has murdered? Sleep itself. And these people, no one can sleep with this injustice looming in the air. Free from our feasts and banquets, bloody knives. Do faithful homage and receive free honors. All which we pine for now. And this report hath so exasperate the king that he prepares for some attempt of war. Very interesting. Why would it be the case that if you march on Macbeth and kill him that bloody knives uh, fail to be a part of feasts anymore? What is he saying there? What is this Lord accepting as true? Right. If you march on Macbeth, and then you kill Macbeth, the bloody knives will no longer be a part of feasts, because the person who made them bloody in the first place, Macbeth, will be gone. gone. Dead. Out of the way. Alright, very good. Act 4, scene 1, the final prophecy. So, we get the three witches together for the third and final time, and they have three special things to say. 
to, to say to us. One thing that should make us feel uh, very, very unconfident and bad as Macbeth, and then two things that will make us feel confident, and then on a third thought, we might think, hmm, perhaps these prophecies are again, what is that concept of speaking in a meaningfully ambiguous way in order to obscure the meaning of your words? We call that what? Equivocation. After anybody remember the Jesuit priest who wrote a work on that, who was himself implicated in the gunpowder plot? Yes? Father Henry Garnett. Very good. Okay, so here's the first piece of the prophecy. Revealed in three apparitions. And something to lay out this scene to, to help you understand it is, here Macbeth goes out to find the witches. Here, before now, he has simply stumbled upon them. It is as if he has found his mind wandering before you accept the conceit that they are in his imagination, that they are in some way representatives of his powerful uh, imagination, as Harold Bloom suggests. Here he actually seeks them. It's as if, here, this is his sort of primitive way of thinking. He doesn't think rationally. He doesn't think things through. He sees things in sort of a visionary way. And here he retreats from reality to imagination. That said, his imagination does seem to mirror reality because he gets this. A helmeted head appears to him. What could that mean? And it says, beware Macduff. Beware the thane of thief. That alone would be enough to keep me cold at night. Beware Macduff. And based on this, uh, Macbeth will send people to the castle of Macduff to end the life of Macduff. Macduff will not be there. He will end up ending the life of Macduff's family and thus giving Macduff reason to want him dead. Uh, reason even more than being a tyrant king. A second apparition, a bloody baby, and it delivers the warning. Macbeth cannot be harmed by any man born of woman. Macbeth will really fixate on this particular prophecy, not understanding that equivocation can cut both ways on him. Because obviously it means that most men will not be able to kill him. Does it mean that all men will not be able to kill him? No, and it says nothing about women either. Apparently Macbeth has not read many stories about genies or gifts of the magi. That's the thing about equivocation. You don't know what you are left open to. Third apparition. A crowned child holding the branch of a tree. That's highly symbolic. Very interesting. A crowned child, like the coming of a new age or something like that. The branch of a tree is obviously a symbol for a what? What is it that a king holds that Achilles back in the Iliad threw down and shattered? Kings hold scepters. They hold scepters, indicating their great strength in any case, and their connection between the top and the bottom. This third apparition promises that Macbeth will not be defeated until Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane Hill. And remember that Burnham Wood is the forest surrounding his castle, and uh, that Dunsinane Hill is the hill on which Inverness, his castle, is built. So the woods themselves must unnaturally... You see the theme coming out here. To dispel that which is unnatural in this world, like Macbeth and his evil deeds, to become king unjustly, unrighteously, something unnatural or unnatural things continue to happen. In fact, that which is unnatural will do away with that which is unnatural. If he is to be killed, it will be through some unnaturally birthed person. Some person who was not born of woman. In fact, the trees themselves must reject uh, Macbeth. It is as if, when you are unnatural, what itself will reject you. Nature itself. And that it will, in its rejection of you, rise against you to destroy you. The elements, the weather, the animals, the people, the trees themselves will turn against you. Indeed, Macbeth has murdered sleep. 
if doing something is un that is unnatural or evil turns nature itself against you, are you ever safe again after making such choices? No. Not from anything. Not your insides, not yourself, not your imagination, not your compatriots, not your king, not your society, not even the trees will give you shade. My goodness. Can Neptune's ocean wipe away or wash away all this blood? Apparently not. Apparently not. In any case, I do want you to remember this first part of the prophecy. Beware Macduff. Beware the saint of fight. If he had nothing to worry about, why would he have received that admonition? He should keep that closer to his heart. In any case, Act 4, Scene 2, this is a brutal, blood-filled scene. It's very sad. Uh, there's Lady Macduff. This is the murder of Macduff's family. Lady Macduff will talk to Ross, and she will admit to Ross that her husband is traitor. She does not seem to believe that he is traitor, but he has been defined as traitor, and she is a loyal woman to the crown, and so she accepts that judgment. In fact, she will end up talking to one of her sons. It seems as if she actually has multiple children, not just this one, but they will have a delightful conversation. He will ask whether father is actually a traitor. She will say that, well, he is defined as traitor, and he'll say what happens to traitors, and she'll say that they're always killed, they're always punished, and he says, must it always be that way? And she says, yes. She is telling her son the natural way of things, just before something deeply unnatural happens to him and to her, which is that the father must outlive the son, quite opposite from Macbeth, where the father seems to, well, we don't know that he has children or not, but we do know that his children do not become kings, and so it is as if he outlives his own children, he outlives his own legacy, at least in a positive way. It's hard to make that comment in a negative way, because obviously his legacy is evil, and we remember it now. That said, Lady Macduff says wisdom to leave his life, to leave his base. She's impugning her husband. He seems to have been forgetful of a fact. He ran himself, but did not run with his family. Uh, this is either a mistake or cowardice on his part. Neither is virtuous. Wisdom to leave his wife, to leave his babes, his mansion, and his titles in a place from whence himself does fly. You see here that just like Jane Austen, Shakespeare makes mistakes with whence and hence. Whence means from where, so you don't need to say from, but he says from whence, that's why many people incorrectly do that to this day. But if you say whence, you don't need from. From whence himself does fly. He loves us not. He wants the natural touch. Ooh, nature again. For the poor wren, the most, the most diminutive of birds, and small, will fight her young ones in her nest against the owl. Again, this is natural even though it is uh, sort of bad nature. You're a wren, you're small, you fight against an owl, what happens to you? You die. And that's the way of nature. Again, showing nature here taking its course. All is the fear and nothing is the love. As little is the wisdom where the flight so runs against all reason. That's very strong right there. All is the fear and nothing is the love. And this will actually be sadly one of the thoughts that she ends up dying with about her husband. Uh, one of the big questions of this play is, what should Macduff have done? Should he have stayed with his family in order to try to defend them and himself be killed? Had he done that, he, as a cesarean section, would not have been the unnaturally born person at the fight against Macbeth later on who could then kill him. So what should he have done? Stayed with his family and died and fought like the wren against the owl? Or fled as he did so that he could purge his people of their evil? Bless you. That's a big question. 
I would like it answered during seminar on Thursday. So she observed that even when our actions are not traitorous, our fear can make us look like traitors. That is an interesting way of her saying that though Macduff appears to be a traitor by running away, it is not necessarily the case that he is a traitor. Again, all these people run from Macbeth. Malcolm and Donalbane, they must have killed their father. Fleance, he must have killed his father Banquo. And then Macduff running, he must uh, be a traitor himself. All these people running away from Macbeth. Perhaps they're murderers, perhaps they're traitors, perhaps they're all running away from the epicenter of some evil, which is the choice, which are the choices of Macbeth. Lady Macduff and all her people are then near the end of the scene. They encounter murderers. It's very sad. She yells out, her son yells out, both are murdered, and whatever other children she has are murdered as well. The murders of Macbeth of Macbeth continue to add up. Banquo, Fleance attempted but not killed. Malcolm, or not Malcolm, he wishes Malcolm. Sorry, King Duncan. And now Lady Macbeth and her children. He has now murdered children in order to maintain the safety of his seat of power. His actions are becoming less and less natural, less and less good, more and more evil. Apparently, part of the thesis of this play is to do that which is unnatural, is to do that which is evil. And yet, Perhaps we will see that that which is unnatural is not always evil and can set that which is also unnatural right. Hmm, interesting. In any case, Act 4, Scene 3, Malcolm Tess Macduff. This is a very odd scene, and if you were just to read it out of context, you might not understand the import of it. But basically, Macduff reaches England. He talks to Malcolm. Malcolm at first thinks that this Macduff is a spy of Macbeth that is there to test the loyalty of Malcolm. And if he is a spy of Macbeth that is there to test the loyalty of Malcolm, Malcolm, if he does not want to die, should appear what to Macbeth? Loyal. And so he talks, he's like, he's like you're not going to get uh, me to admit that uh, Macbeth is clearly a tyrant and is totally evil. I'm actually much worse than Macbeth, and I'll have him say that here. He confides to Macduff that he is lustful, greedy. That's what the word luxurious originally meant. By the way, to be luxurious means to be lustful, lecherous. Um, I grant him bloody, luxurious, avaricious. We know that means greedy, false, deceitful. Those mean the same things. Uh, sudden, uh, that means impulsive, malicious, evil, smacking of every sin, sin that has a name. So apparently Macbeth would be on every circle of the front. But there's no bottom. None in my voluptuousness. That means, again, his luxury, his lechery. Your wives... Your daughters, your matrons, and your maids could not fill up the cistern of my lust. Whoa. And my desire all continent impediments would overbear that did oppose my will better Macbeth than such as one to reign. So, you're reading that, you're like, this is very confusing. Malcolm seems even worse than Macbeth. It seems like he would try and lay with every lady in the kingdom. Why is he saying all of this? Well, the reason why he says this sort of thing is because, as I said earlier, he was testing um, he was testing Macbeth to see whether he was loyal or not loyal to Macbeth. In any case, Macduff admits that not only... Okay, after Macduff admits that not only is Malcolm uh, not fit to be king, he's not meant to live, that is when Malcolm confesses that he was only testing Macduff's loyalty. Malcolm is then pleased that Macduff has shown himself to be loyal to Scotland and not just whoever happens to be on Scotland's throne. That brings up an interesting philosophical question. 
Should you follow the laws of an unjust king? Well, it comes down to this syllogism. If what a king is, is somebody who plays the role of leader justly, and then someone asks, acts unjustly, are they playing the role of king correctly? Answer is obviously what? No. If they are not playing the role of king correctly, are the laws that come from them laws you are bound to obey? The answer is also what? No. No. Therefore, when you are loyal to a king, are you loyal to a person or a particular set of actions tethered to an idea? The latter. You are loyal to an idea if you are loyal to a state or a king. You are loyal to the direct embodiment of the ideals of your people or of that role. If someone is king, they must be just to be a legitimate king. They're acting unjustly, criminally, evilly. They are by definition no longer a what, even if legally they are. A king, exactly. And so you must stay loyal to the idea not to the person. And that's very sophisticated, very difficult. Apparently, who did not understand that? Who died unjustly? Who was still loyal to the king, even after, or even just before being put to death by the same king? We just talked about it, yes? Not Banquo, though Banquo is a, not a bad idea, but I'm thinking of somebody more recent, yes? Lady Macduff, indeed. Lady Macduff, indeed. Very good. All right. Last act. Act 5, scene 1. Lady Macbeth, we have not seen her much since last we saw her at the feast with Macbeth. And in that feast, she seemed to have a clear head. She seemed to be clear-minded. Who was it that was having difficulty at that time keeping things together? It was Macbeth who saw the, that ghost three times. But apparently, the weight of what she has done, the unnaturalness of what Lady Macbeth has done, has started to catch up with her. She has summoned a doctor, or rather, the maid has summoned a doctor to cure, to cure Lady Macbeth of sleepwalking. Again, remember, Macbeth has murdered sleep. She does not even rest in her sleep. She even walks then. She seems to be unaware of everything, and she even mentions the murders of Macbeth. They are weighing not only on Macbeth's conscience, conscience but also on his conspirator, his co-conspirator's conscience. Is it, it is as if she is Cassius and he is himself Brutus. Who understands that? They are both the what's in that case. Cassius and Brutus conspired against Julius Caesar killers. to kill him. Not just killers. He was the legitimate king of Rome in some ways at that time. Emperor. Traitors. Traitors. Because she too conspired to kill a what? A king. Kill a king as a traitorous act, not simply an act of murder. Because you are attempting to attack an idea there, a very powerful idea. In any case, while she is doing this, and this is so powerful, her hands, she's trying to scrub her hands as if they can't get what? Clean. And remember what it is that she had said in response to Macbeth when he had said, Can all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood from my hands? She replied, a little water will clear us of this bloody deed. And yet now, she says, while scrubbing her hands to the bone, out, damned spot, out. It's as if she's seen things, just like whom, who has just been seeing things that others cannot. Macbeth, it's as if the act of murder itself is not the only unnatural thing, but the plot 
is bad enough, which is interesting if you think about our definition of first-degree murder, which requires intent and planning to have you convicted of. Hmm. Hmm. In any case, she will continue to devolve. Excellent Lady Macbeth. We will see her go the way, likely, of Dido or Jocasta, though there is some debate about whether she commits suicide or not. Act 5, scene 2, we're going to go fast now. The forces gather at Inverness. English soldiers, along with Malcolm and Macduff, have assembled near Macbeth's castle. Now, Macbeth, and this is, this is Angus speaking these lines, now Macbeth feels his hidden murder sticking to his hand, sticking like dried blood. His followers act only because they are commanded to so, not out of love, as if he is not a legitimate ruler, as if, as if he is himself the one causing the schism, as if he, like MacDonald, is enlisting mercenary help. His legitimacy is totally gone at this point, and so his magnetic power to draw people around an idea as a king is totally what? Gone. Nobody's coming to him anymore. Nobody's coming to his aid. Nobody's staying with him. They're going over towards that which is right, that which is natural, the king that should have been, Malcolm. Now he feels his title of king draped loosely around him, hanging like a giant's robe upon a dwarf-like thief. Again, the theme of borrowed robes comes up. The role is only yours insofar as it fits you, insofar as you act appropriately to it, you must fit the robe. But his decisions have dwarfed him, have turned him small from something that must be large. You must fill the shoes correctly. In fact, that is an expression we have that literally means the same thing. If I say you don't fill last class's shoes very well, what am I saying about you? You're not as good as them. You don't stand up to scrutiny when I compare you to them. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And that is how the human comparison works. Everybody plays a role. You compare how well somebody performs the role. That's how it works in music, how it works in sports, how it works in all professions in this world as well. Which is why it's so, such nonsense to say you shouldn't compare things. You think by comparing things. In, in any case, Act 5, Scene 3. Macbeth's position continues to worsen. His men are abandoning him. He says, Bring me no more reports. Very like Hitler near the end of his reign as a Nazi, I, I, I want to say king, but he called himself Fuhrer, which essentially means the same thing. That said, that said, supposedly he would be brought reports and be told that battalions had been killed, had been destroyed by the Allies, and then he would take a piece from the large map he would have, which would have an outline of the territories and the military regiments on it, and he would take a piece that had been taken off of the map and put it back on. Apparently the part of being a tyrant is to not want to hear bad news, which means you don't want to hear and face what? The truth. The truth, which means reality itself. Bring me no more reports. He doesn't want to hear it. Let them fly all. Well, that's not going to lead to victory. Tell Burnham Wood, remove to Dunsinane. I cannot take with fear. What's the boy, Malcolm? Was he not born of woman? Does he have anything to fear? Unfortunately, who's with Malcolm, who he does have to fear? Macduff. The spirits that know all mortal consequences have pronounced me thus. Fear not, Macbeth. No man that's born of woman shall ever have power upon thee. Then fly false things and mingle with the English epicures. Ooh, very good. That's Epicureans, all the pleasure seekers. The mind I sway by and the heart I bear shall never sag with doubt nor shake with fear. Ooh. So, the guest men are abandoning him. 
Those who remain, terrified because of the obviously superior English force gathering near the castle. And probably they think that that's a more legitimate force too. Because it has Malcolm, who was actually nominated to, or to be king, who was actually successor next to Macduff, who has his, has had his family destroyed. Though I don't know that that was common knowledge at the time. In any case, Macbeth claims that he has confidence because none of these people were not born of women. But he cannot possibly actually feel confident in this moment. He is trying to use his imagination against the reality of the situation, and he is failing. Act 5, scene 4. Burnham Wood's attack. Okay, the first of two, or the first of the three pieces of prophecy now hits us. Malcolm order, orders the soldiers in the woods to each now hew down a branch and carry it before him, thus to conceal the size of our force and trick McBuck's reconnaissance into making a false report of us. They are each going to be holding sticks above them. They will look like trees that are moving forward. It will look as if what is marching on Dunsinane Hill? The forest itself. Burnham Wood. It is as if nature itself is turning on Macbeth and meeting his unnatural act with another unnatural act that will expunge him from the world. Okay, good. Act 5, scene 5. Sort of in the middle of everything, and media raise itself in the middle of this act, we find out that Lady Macbeth is dead, which has made all the tragic more tragic by this. We don't have time to investigate. Was it suicide? Did she die of nerves or some other related illness? That uh, Did she just give up on life? Hard to say. We recall Jocasta and the fact that she could not deal with the horror of laying with her son. We recall Dido and the fact that she could not, she could not mm, how do I say this, uh, deal with the fact that she had given up her claim to fame and immortality through betraying her oath to Sakaius. That's a good way of putting it. In any case, the sad thing here is that we don't even have time to do what for Lady Macbeth after she's died. We have no time to grieve for her. She's just a numberless dead here. Even though she was such a great character, she has been so reduced in size from being so strong to someone we do not even grieve for, like an unmarked grave, like headless Priam on the shores of Troy. She should have died hereafter, Macbeth said. There would have been time for such a word. Very interesting to this is a connection in the play Julius Caesar by uh, Shakespeare as well. When Brutus and Cassius, the two guys get chewed on by Lucifer alongside Judas in the Inferno, during their battle after Cassius dies, Brutus says this, and I think this is eternally damning and a wonderful thing to say. I shall find the time, Cassius. I shall find time. What will he find time for, which he actually will not, but what is he saying he will find time for eventually? To mourn. And yet, Cassius, like Lady Macbeth, has been so reduced that he is not even worthy of what at the end of his life? Mourning. It's like the opposite of being a what? Hero. A hero. Right. Right. Act 5, scene 6, and we need to move fast. The defeat of Macbeth's forces. The English forces under Malcolm, Macduff, and Seward capture Macbeth's Castle, Macduff, make all our trumpets speak, give them all breath, those clamorous harbingers of blood and death. Alright, Macbeth's people are defeated. Five, seven, the insanity of Macbeth. Macbeth then kills young Seward. Thou wast born of woman, but swords I smile at, weapons laugh to scorn, brandished by man, that's of woman born. Outside the English forces report that Macbeth's few remaining men do not even fight. Several, we find out, have even come face to face with Malcolm himself and done nothing. So Macbeth is now walking about, blithering crazy, alone, saying that anybody born of woman cannot strike me down. So he fights with young Seward, not the old one, and defeats him and kills him. That said, he runs into, in scene 8, 
Macduff. Turn, hellhound, turn, he says to Macbeth. Macbeth, welcoming all comers, says, You are not born of woman. You cannot stand against me, and yet he has a, cold, a, a glass of cold water here. When Macduff says, Despair thy charm, and let the angel whom thou still hast served, that's Lucifer, tell thee, Macduff, was from his mother's womb untimely rift, so highly symbolic, because it is just like how Macbeth has untimely ripped other people from life and killed them, so will Macduff do the same to Macbeth. He kills him. Seward ironically observes that not many people have died. Unfortunately, his own son has died here. That's what's ironic about it. Malcolm immediately assumes his place as king. I'll read this to you and then you can go. We shall not spend a large expense of time before we reckon with your several loves. And make us even with you, my thanes and kinsmen, henceforth be earls, the first that ever Scotland in such an honor named. And that's Macbeth.